This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Agent. An agent? Okay. So he was actually taking direction from us and he got shot in front of a parole pro- office and was killed. But that wasn't on us. That's on him telling people he shouldn't have been telling that he's right. working for the police, right? Well, and yeah, if you want to be confidential. This is quite the nice little setup you have. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's, um... Going for a drive, like, actually just down your street here. I was at a suspicious death, but I forgot all about it until I turned down the street. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's a stock image from somewhere. Sarah always wants the nice things. That's the great thing about Sarah. Pretty chair if you want. Thanks. Right on. Nice. Do you do these? Yeah, this is all me. Cool. Very cool. I used to teach it, and I had a store and did all this stuff, so. That's cool. It was like my previous life. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Why'd you give it up? Um, at the time, I never had a family, so I was doing this, like, as my job. So I had yeah. a big, huge basement studio nice. store. Yeah. She'll be the asking the questions here. <laughs> All right. This and, is uh, rapport building. Oh, this is that is, what that is? Yeah, we got to If only somebody would other. write a book that talks about rapport building. Yeah. yeah. Do you know anybody like to say? <sighs> I wish I did. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming, you guys. Yeah, You're thanks welcome. for having us. Like, to do, if we're going to, like, if there's going to continue to be, like, a little podcast. Oh, after, yeah. yeah. Because, yeah. like, I turned down the street, and I completely forgot, but I was... More stories. Well, I had a suspicious death just down the road. My name is uh, Dave Sweet, and you can find me at unconventionalclassroom.ca. Hi, everyone. It's Valerie here. Today's show is a two-part episode, sort of from my archives. Not that I've released this episode before, but I did this interview late in 2019. And we, my guest and I, had big plans, like plans for a series and more. But alas, COVID hit and boom done with these plans. For now, this is a special interview. Actually, one of my first interviews with a writer, an author from Calgary, and a detective. This is his book we're going to be discussing today with him and his co-writer slash confidant, Sarah Grahams. The book is called Skeletons in My Closet, Life Lessons from a Homicide Detective. I should mention the topics discussed in this book are not for children, and some of these might also be triggers as we review crime scenes and stories in some depth. However, it's all around the basis of what he's learned, Dave Sweet, about being a homicide detective. Also, this interview was back when, before COVID, before social distancing, and way before our lives changed in so many ways. Like, 
We shared microphones, sat at the same table, hugged and drank tea and water for hours in the same room, without shields. Ah, the good old days. I digress. You're in for a real treat, though, in the next couple of episodes. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome back to Valerie's Variety So Podcast. today I'm welcoming Dave Sweet and Sarah Graham to the show. this show. I recently read The Skeletons in My Closet and book and wanted to learn about his life as a detective and his desire to write a book about it. And the His co-author, Sarah Graham, is apparently his polar opposite. She's the softness to his brutal works on the streets of Calgary as a detective. She, Sarah, has a background in writing. She's a liberal optimist author who teamed up with Dave Sweet to write this book, Skeletons in My Closet, Life Lessons from a Homicide Detective. Sarah has a barrage of amazing books of her own, as well as co-write or partner write with many authors. Welcome to the show, Sarah and Dave. Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming. Let's start off. Can you do a reading from your book, probably the back of your book, to kind of set the stage of what we're going to discuss? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So Skeletons in My Closet is an unorthodox police memoir, taking readers on a ride along like no other, revealing poignant truths about life and death and how we can all work and live together. Danger and grit pair with humor and compassion in this gripping, fresh read. Dave Sweet, a conservative veteran homicide detective, has teamed up with Sarah Graham, a liberal optimistic author, to write this unconventional universal life lessons book. Thank you. Great. So basically, you, when I talk to you guys both individually, both said the same thing, so you're on the same page. (laughs) So that was good. <laughs> that was a test. <laughs> How close are they? <clears throat> no. Um, and you said that she kind of softened some of the hard mm-hmm. hardness of your job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And you agreed that you kind of took his words and made them into kind of like more of a civilian definition or something more that anybody could understand and kind of get the feeling of what he was trying to portray. Yeah, well... I guess I might be jumping ahead. When I first met Dave from the writing community, when he was giving presentations, how Dave presents mm -hmm. I didn't even think of how you guys met. (laughs) This wasn't even my question. But how how Dave presents, um, he's actually a a kick-butt presenter, but I I noticed even then that he had, quote-unquote, cop speak. Okay. Um, And when you're in a room listening to a police officer to get information and, you know, notes for a book you're going to write, you know, mm-hmm. a fiction book. That's what you want. You want that cop the speak. real. Yeah, because that's, that's what you want to mimic when, you know, the cadence for your characters and that sort of thing. But for a, a book to actually be processed by the general public, cop speak wasn't going to get it done. To, and Dave had such great lessons and messages that he wanted to get across. Mm-hmm. So... I knew that I could help bridge that gap um, between Dave's conditioned cop speak and the really great lessons he wanted to share. Totally. I think she, like uh, Sarah, I mean, in um, with great gratitude, she um, 
Absolutely. Yeah. She softens those edges and she makes the book more palatable, essentially, for a larger audience, right? So I guess not only the cop speak, but the content is super heavy and traumatizing. Traumatizing. But when you're reading, when you want people to process a book and read a book and take in the life lessons, which was the key story, right? Like Mm -hmm. the life lessons, that's the, that's the The premise, the the premise of the book, the bones of the book. Um, you don't want to ever traumatize your reader. And so you have to communicate those traumas in such a way that people will be able to understand the trauma and the severity of situations, but not be like two by four upside the head where they can't actually get the life lessons. And I, I kind of felt like that too. So when I was reading some of them, I thought you gave enough information about the situation that you knew you know, some of the finer details, but it wasn't the horrific emotion maybe that came with it or the ridiculousness of it. Because some of them you toned down as well, even if right. they were kind of weird, right? Right. So I think that was a really good way to tell the story. And you set it the stage with a lesson. Yes. Because we really wanted the essence to be the lessons. And the rest, the um, I guess those details... We did want to include enough so that readers could under, like, really get that this was a serious, um, event mm-hmm. and that these lessons did not come easily and that sometimes we have to pay attention. You know, when, um, sometimes when we're going through tough stuff in life, um, paying attention, um, to something softer, even in the midst of that can help us get through those traumatizing times. I think that was right. one of the lessons you wanted and what, You've learned on the job when the people with grace go through these yeah. awful things, mm-hmm. but that when they when they go through with a grace that it's just so admirable that you can't help but be inspired. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I That's thought that what, was really um, really told well, and you could definitely feel it, like in the story, right. for sure. Sarah, can you, so we have a copy of the book here. Oh, yeah. Um, Thank you, Dave, for bringing that. Can you describe the cover of the book for us? Sure. So it's got the softness and the reality, I think, of the message, right? Yeah, well, um, I guess what stands out the most is there is a a skeleton hand with a a blue butterfly that's like a glowing blue butterfly on it. Um, The background are shades of gray. which also is a major component of one of the chapters in the book, right? It is, yeah. One of the um, lessons. And yeah. Mm-hmm. I had to read it off my Kindle, so I'm glad <laughs> you guys have a paper copy. Yeah, and it um, that the shades of gray and discretion and and really again that paying attention, uh, paying attention and taking the the time and space to actually um, be present with whatever situation you're in and and really read what's happening. Um, and then I guess yeah, the title "Skeletons in My Closets" in orange. Yeah. And Dave loves this cover. I do. And well, Brenda loves this cover. Brenda loves it too. Yes. So who designed the cover? Brenda did, our publisher. Oh, Brenda yeah. did. Okay, yeah. great. And it was, okay, this is a little like, again, the softer side of Dave. Mm-hmm. So this is Dave's first, well, I guess our first book was actually the chat book, the like prequel to this. Oh, okay. I don't know that one. Well, mm-hmm. well maybe we'll we just, will. We will discuss that, that one too later. Okay. Yes. Great. Um, it's basically, it was just behind the scenes of writing this one. 
But when oh, Brenda, okay. so behind the scenes, yeah, when Brenda showed us this cover, Dave was like a little kid at Christmas. He just lit up because there was, yeah, there was the cover, the book cover. So that was actually really cool to to witness a new author having that, yeah, that moment because it's a pretty cool moment. Well, I love the butterfly on it um, because mm-hmm. the butterfly is this symbolic sort of. We have a symbolism sort of through the book and the butterfly defines the lessons, which so, I love. Yeah, so you have um, the butterfly effect. Yeah, it's like that transformation, really, right? Yeah. Totally. And then I was just thinking on when you were talking about the gray cover. Oh, I yeah. know, I love that. So we'll talk about that in a second. So it said disc- discretion is making decisions in the gray. Mm-hmm. So whatever side you're leaning towards, your best judgment is the gray area that you have to make some sort of a discretion on, yeah. right? Yeah. We have to do that every day in life, mm-hmm. but I think for you and your position and the sensitive nature of what you're doing, that gray area is so big. It is, but there's a certain like lines that you know you can't cross. So um, like a, uh, I actually say it in the book, but I mean, one of the things is you always want to make sure that your actions don't make headlines in the news. Actions don't make headlines in the news? What a statement that you have to live with, within your every single hour in your job. We don't want our decisions, if poorly made, to make it into social media. But being spawned from the news would be so much more personal and worse, let's face it. These bits of news are typically out of context. Possibly starting from truth, but they want to sell views and sensationalize every detail. Isn't the way Dave speaks soothing? I wonder if he had training on this disposition. So thoughtful and reflective. I, I know. I'm sure that's so apparent, too. I mean, unless Anything. they're good things, right? We unless only want to say good things. Right. We course. all. And if it's, a, if it's a great headline, then fantastic. But we don't want to have the, the, the negative headlines. Yeah. Um, but a uh, long time ago, I decided that I was going to police in the community um, with the perspective of this. I was going to go with what I thought, what I would sort of do, like a little random poll in my head and say, what would 80% of people want the me to do? The 80-20 rule. Right? Mm-hmm. If 80% of the people would say, you know what, I understand that position or I take that, I understand that or mm-hmm. I, I get it, then I'm okay. If uh, 80% said, ooh, that wouldn't be good and um, I would totally disagree with that type of a decision, then obviously I've made a bad decision. Right. And so I, I, I never worry about the 20%. No. On either side. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like making decisions in the gray is, uh, is, uh, well, that's where you find compassion, mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of the decision making processes you, you have. I mean, you think of this, the very innocuous traffic stop with the police officer pulls a vehicle over for some sort of a traffic violation. You know, there's, I guess there's two approaches to it. Uh, many people want to give a side of their story. Um, I think the officer that practices discretion and is in the gray will listen to that story and make a decision on whether mm-hmm. or not there's know, validity yeah, or truth or, or is, d- d- does there need to be a fine assessed? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. the, but he's open minded to it. That doesn't mean that the ticket isn't going to be given, but it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that the ticket necessarily does crying won't help. Be. No, I'm yeah. just joking. <laughs> but but that's a like a very just an innocuous example of. Um, 
I think we should all be that way. I don't think we should ever go into a situation completely closed-minded to the possibility that we might actually, after listening to somebody else's point of view, change something, mm-hmm. you know? Um, that actually reminds me um, how it great, like thinking within the gray is such a, a big picture mm-hmm. thinking as mm-hmm. a, and like long-term right. instead of like immediate or short-term or just like, yeah, blinders on. Narrow, yeah. Yeah, a narrow focus. Um, and big picture thinking, um, I think, serves the community for years to come, right? Like, Right. Um, well, it's, yeah, it's more than just the immediate. Right. Right? You're thinking of how is this going to impact so-and-so, how it's going to impact maybe your employer, the community, right. the well, race, even, or whatever. Or right? even just that having a positive experience with a police officer, that person will be more likely to right. reach Assist out to a police officer, either if they need help or if somebody else needs help right. or if the police officer needs help right. with some people coming forward. Um, we talk about relationship building a lot in the book and that that's so key, I think, in every, um, actually every discipline, <laughs> law enforcement or otherwise. Um, but I think it's just so critical for, for those in law enforcement to have those positive relationships. And it, using discretion mm-hmm. gives is also an opportunity to build a bridge, build a relationship, totally. instead of shut it down before one can even form. Totally. Right, or try to develop an answer before you have all of that right. discretionary thought. That's right. Right, and that's yeah. one of the points I think you kept reiterating in your book is that you know, you don't always have all the information right away. You have to wait. You have to build it. You got to learn about the family and the history. And so I think, yeah, I really liked that. And it just kind of triggered when you were saying the whole background is sort of gray because life is sort of gray, mm-hmm. yeah. sort of <clears throat> not totally clear. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. Um, I don't know if I should if I want to share this or not, but I, I will share it. I mean, um, just recently there's an, a, there is an example in the book, um, of a case where we showed a great deal of discretion when it came to, um, um, making a decision whether or not we we're going to lay charges after, a uh, a, a, a suicide of a very young boy. And, um, is this the baby? No, it's uh, okay. it's a it's another another investigation that I was involved in. But you know, just last week, uh, this is now seven years later. Um, I was contacted by the father. You were? I was. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, um, you know, you go back to that decision that was made back seven years earlier, uh, and think you know we did probably the right thing. You know, and this person still feels comfortable to be able to reach out and talk to me or uh, he had some questions for me. So, uh, so I don't know if you can divulge, but I don't know the story. So yeah. he, he committed suicide at a young age. Yes. There was a, he, he was a young fellow, mm-hmm. um, under the age of 14. Oh, okay. That's very young. And, uh, he took his life mm-hmm. and, uh, he used a gun that should never have been in the home. Mm. Um, oh, I think I remember that. Yeah. Now. Yeah. And, right. um, there was an opportunity there to, um, there was an opportunity there, I guess, to lay a number of firearms charges and, um, and not look beyond that and not look beyond that. And, uh, the father would go to jail and, uh,
In another case on a hot summer afternoon, a heartbroken and sad 13-year-old boy pulled back his shower curtain, took off his slippers, removed his shirt, and shot himself in the head while his older sister was watching television downstairs. The gun the boy used was his father's, originally stolen and from a cache of firearms found unsafely stored on the premises. If charged and convicted, the father was looking at a minimum mandatory sentence of three years in jail. This would be after we sorted out the tragic suicide of his son, who had used a gun the father should never have had in the family home to begin with. For black and white thinkers, the father should face the full criminal consequences for his carelessness, regardless of the fact he realized his own grave mistake had ultimately contributed to his son's death. Taking a step back and looking at it from a broader perspective should be considered. We obviously didn't want this to happen again, and judging by the father's reaction, it could, this time with him being the next suicide victim. Consideration for public safety, including this family's, was first and foremost on our minds. If we were to permanently seize the firearms and prohibit the father from ever owning guns again, we had to charge the father criminally. In this case, that would come with an automatic three-year sentence of incarceration. None of us felt good about that outcome. The father was the primary breadwinner. If he went to jail for the next three years, there would be significant consequences for the rest of the family already grappling with the unfathomable loss of a brother and a son. How to proceed with this case weighed heavily on all of our minds. Another investigator close to the case reasoned there must be something that could help, and poured over the criminal statutes. He found a section within the law that was rarely used but that would accomplish our, our, our objectives. Removal and destruction of the guns would spare the father from incarceration but still prohibit him from ever owning guns again. It did require extra work, writing applications to the court, and something we had never written without a context like this before. For all of us, it felt like the right thing to do. So I just found your lesson on that one, and we were talking about the gray again. So when we only think in black and white, we become narrow-minded to the greater game playing out before us. That's right. Right? That's right. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. And then, you know, years later, this man contacts me, and I can tell you that there's... um, there's zero doubt that uh, the day that happened is still Fresh. alive and well in his in his heart, sadly. Yeah. Um, and absolutely no term of incarceration would change that fact. So nothing yeah. has changed. I mean, he lives with this reality every single day. And um, uh, the most important thing is... His family is still intact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, which is uh, which is a, a real testament because um, often families that lose sons or daughters, uh, they don't well, they, they don't survive. Yeah, they become yeah. broken. Sure, they're broken. Yeah. yeah. So there's uh, more victims. Yeah, there yeah. is. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. it was uh, that that particular incident is a is a is a real. I think yeah, it really does speak to. You know, taking into account a lot of different factors beyond just the just the facts, ma'am. You know, guns unsafely stored. You're going to jail. Like, right. That is a very narrow-minded view where you don't actually get a chance to understand what the full ramification of that could potentially be. Right, and I mean, life is not cut and dry. It's not. I mean, we need we need to have that foundation to be able to make these other decisions. Right. Right, you have to have a baseline, but it's not cut and dry. I think one of the things that uh, 
the book, at least the feedback I've gotten from the book is it helps empower people to think outside the box and think in the gray. Almost um, by reading about somebody else doing it, um, I've heard feedback that people, it's like they give themselves permission. Oh, wait, I, I'm not the only one. I can do this. Like, I can think outside of the... Yeah, um, you kind of empower people to choose not just the siloed point of view or right. the yeah. silo law. I mean, that's the hope anyways. Right. So, yeah. But yeah, that's what books do, yeah, right? to be refreshing. That's what books do. They spread ideas mm-hmm. that people can consider and, and chew on and contemplate and decide if it works for them or not. Right. So how did you guys meet? So you were at a speaking thing, I heard you say a minute ago. Yeah, so you know it was years ago, so there's a conference. Like nine now? Eight or nine? Jeez, you were all so young then. Yeah. <laughs> I don't so, even recognize <laughs> so, so years ago, I got contacted by our public affairs unit. There was a writer's conference that was occurring in Calgary. So this had been brewing in you for a while? Uh, no, the this writer's part conference? Actually, no, this hadn't. Okay. So what happened is the writing, this writing conference in Calgary it was their first year, mm-hmm. and they had contacted the Calgary Police Service. They wanted to have an um, investigator come and speak at the conference and talk a little bit about cop stuff. Okay. So for their uh, budding mystery writers and uh, give people an opportunity to ask some questions. And one thing that's great about the writers in general uh, fiction and non-fiction they want to get it as right as mm-hmm. as close as possible yeah accuracy you know yeah, right. that is important to them and so to have access i think my understanding was is to have access to an investigator to run some ideas by or just oh, hear how oh, i talk okay. you know I you understand what you're saying okay you, you yeah. know they they Does get it they get right a, or? yeah they get a better Thank you. they get a better product in the end so i had agreed to do this conference um and then uh, it actually went really well. And then I did another one. And uh, one of the gals at the conference uh, had seen me. And she was part of a writing group that Sarah was a part of. And so they had asked me to go and do one specifically for them. And that's how Sarah and I originally met. Yep. So I would go and uh, do these different you know, little talks and make myself accessible to people. And they could ask questions for the development of their own characters. And he had business cards. He gives this presentation. It's really interesting. And he has a stack of business cards. And he's like, take take my card. If you have any, you know, if you think you'll write a character or have any questions, just like shoot me an email or whatever. And I'll try to help, you know. Okay, cool. So I learned early in my writing career that you, when somebody offers such a to resource you, say, you just yeah. smile and say thank you yes please yes thank you i got you yeah so i took his card and then pestered you for like i don't know a few times a year for five years yeah and then one day i'm sitting around the um like truly it's how we start the book it's sort of the introduction but i am i'm sitting on i'm on a around a pool on a family vacation and um Oh, yeah. You know, I'm in close quarters with my kids, and the mm-hmm. kids start asking some questions. Mm-hmm. And they just had a few little questions that they they were kind of gnawing at them. And um, I wasn't distracted because I was on holidays, and so I could answer a few. And it kind of put the bug in my ear that, you know, um, I think I want to have uh, some sort of a written legacy for them. And so uh, uh, I came back from that holiday. 
And I contacted Sarah and I kind of pitched an idea to her. And actually the original idea I pitched was the book falls in line with it a little bit, but we certainly modified it to become more sort of life lesson-y mm-hmm. um, than what it originally was. And, um, and then, yeah, we just started to work together and, and uh, I started using my contact in the writing community, which was Sarah. Because, of course, one of the things people are really worried about when they write a book is, well, where do I start? How do I get it going? Mm-hmm. How do I get it into a, like, mm-hmm. pages into, like, something with covers? Right. How do you get concepts in your brain? But yeah. Stories, how you, memories. How do you sort them? How do you start yeah. the, right. into that? How about, Dave, how about you read us your intro? Because I do like sure. how you've kind of um, sure. wrote that out here. Sure. I love the paper, by the way. Oh, thanks. Yeah, the mm-hmm. book is... We won't future. crease this too much. This will be for you, okay, Valerie, you. when it's all done. I'll get you to um, we'll do a little sign. Yeah, sign up for me. More than a year ago, I was sitting around in a pool in Palm Springs, California, watching my kids play while I stretched out on my lounger, cold drink in hand. I had just finished an investigation where a young mother had been murdered, her half-naked body dumped into a drainage ditch, not to be found for months. Her little boy was left to be raised by strangers, the father had been sentenced to life, and now sat in a jail cell for the senseless crime. This case was no more horrific than others. It was the accumulation of them that had me reflecting on my own mortality, my family, and my career. We get good at handling the darker sides of human behavior, sometimes cases float, or catapult into our awareness long after the reports are filed and the verdict's in. This career has given opportunities for me to reflect both on my success and family and to realize how lucky I am. So many go through tragedy, strife, and unfortunate circumstances. My kids live in a world where they are provided the things they need and a lot of the things they want. As I watch them play with such carefree happiness, I wish to share with them and understanding what others go through and the lessons many of these situations have taught me. I wanted to write a book that talked about these things, lessons from dad that they could turn to as they grow older. My father, from whom I learned so much, passed away during this project. Everything hit home even harder. And so I began outlining ideas. Staying out of dark places keeps you safe. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Not everyone lives behind white picket fences. These became the building blocks from skeletons in my closet. And that is really, in in essence... uh, Yeah, that's the introduction. I mean, I find it interesting that you use that title because it's sort of cliche, right? It is, yeah. Skeletons in their closet. It's something that we all have. And so to take your work and put it in that umbrella mm-hmm. of a saying I think is so valid. I mean it's really an interesting when, way to just kind of it's a different take on the skeleton. Yeah, it's a different take on be skeletons. Open. Right. You know, because I mean obviously I have some. Yeah, you have your own emo- emo- yeah, you emo- emo- I have some emotional ones and um and, and things of that nature. But yeah, for me, the bottom line and I really like this part in the introduction when oh, say sorry. we get yes, we get good at handling the darker sides of human behavior. Sometimes cases Oh, sorry, pardon me. It was the accumulation of them that had me reflect on my own mortality. And that's so true. So when you are in a place where you work around death all of the time, mm-hmm. um, it becomes very clear that 
you know, we all have more, their mortality is within all of us. Right. It's a sure and, thing. And so it's weird. I mean, some people would find this maybe off putting or scary as a thought, but I've come to learn that if you accept the fact that you're going to die at some point in time and you don't know exactly when that day is coming, you will do more with your life than if you just sort of expect that you're going to live till you're 90. And so one of the things for me was I wanted to have honestly a written legacy. So that if I was to go tomorrow, if nothing else, my kids will have words written by their father mm-hmm. that they'll be able to turn to at some point in time, whether it's now or 10 years from now and things that can be shared with my grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And I love that part. And, um, Truly, when you open up the book and you kind of go through it, you will find these little butterflies placed yes, all the way I through love it. Them. Yeah. And they are the lessons to my son or daughter. Some of them are ones that we've all heard before, you know. Um, others are unique to, I guess, Your my situation. situation. Yeah. But um, all of them, I think, are important little. Uh, well, they're universal. All of them are universal. And they're really great little lessons for, uh, you know. Um, Kids, people yeah. in general, but I wanted my, my, my children to understand where have I been for the last, um, 15 years of life, of, of their life, really. And why haven't I been home and what have I been learning? Mm-hmm. And how often do we all go out into this world? We all do it. We learn things. We see things. We experience things. We come back home and we never share them with anybody. Mm-hmm. And this book was an opportunity to share some of those things and really maybe a bit of guilt, but account for my absence from away from the house. Yeah, I was listening to some of your um, your links that you sent me and one of them had a comment in there where you can tell if Dave's working on a case because his facial hair is getting longer and longer. Mm-hmm. So some of those times where you didn't make it home or you didn't have time to shave or right. whatever. I don't know if you had kids at the time or not. I, don't I did, know yeah. what your kids are. So, I mean, we we all have moments of that where you're like, well, shit, I just want to, you know, go to a movie with my girlfriend and or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Or spend a little longer time away from home. Mm-hmm. But when you do have something like a memoirs or some sort of a... A book that somebody can reference, I think, is really special. Like, yeah. I think it's a really neat thing to leave behind. You know, a love mm-hmm. letter from, you know, a spouse or something is one thing. But to have it kind of be about your life outside of your home right, is such a neat concept. Yeah. Well, I, I just really hope that people it. get, I hope my children will one day, um, um, you know, take something from it. They'll probably be like, Dad, why didn't you just buy me an Archie comic? And I'm yeah. Just yeah, they might. <laughs> they, they may. Might. I know, because yeah. I, I make clothes for my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, Mom, I don't want this now. I want just the store-bought stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All I wanted was clothes made by my mother. No. Yeah. But, um, well, thank you for reading that opening. So then you guys met and you kind of took where he started his ideas and then you just kind of worked together. So how long did it take you to kind of get the meat together of it? 18 months. Yeah. Oh, 18 months. Which for in Dave years, that's like a million years in Dave years. Mm -hmm. But yes, I've noticed you're quite prompt. 
Yeah. Yes. Quick you're a very prompt I responder. Know. I would send the emails out, ping. I'm like, whoa, you already got that and responded? Yeah. Yeah. That, very that got old. Not going to lie. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's why you text or email, right? right. So that there's not an immediate there's, response. Yeah, there's. But he'd respond immediately. I'm like, dude. Like you, can, you don't have you to. You can think about it. Yeah, I'm like, you it. can get back to me. I am now doing something completely different. Right, I'm on to something else already. I hit send. Yeah, now I'm off to something. Else. It's out of my mind. And for me, the anxiety of thinking that somebody could be waiting for my response uh, tears me up inside. And so I I jump on it right away. I don't want people to wait for me. I never want people to wait for me. And so I. Uh, you I, where do you coffee. think that stems from? I don't know. Do you think when you were a kid, you didn't want to ever, like, you had to wait for somebody all the time? No. Like, Maybe that's just more rude. conditioning, like, Every officer job? conditioning. It may just be a Gemini brain. I don't know. Oh, you're a Gemini? Yeah. Oh, when's your birthday? I can it's totally see June. June, June what? June 14th. Oh, you were such a Gemini. You were right in the middle of that. Yeah. But, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know where that comes from, but hmm. I just know it's very real. It's a very palpable feeling. Yeah, for it's you. a very real feeling, and so a little OCD. Um, yeah, I mean, so I get a like lot. It's of a best. huge respect thing too. It's I, about being very yeah. cognizant of somebody else. And I get a lot of emails in the course of a day. I get a lot of text messages in the course of a day, and so I just want to make sure that I get to everybody as quickly as possible, and and nobody feels like. I mean, do I always do it successfully? No, right. And sometimes things get lost in the in the. That's a pretty good. But I I try my best. Right. Yeah. There was one time I emailed him a book question. This was like years ago, and he (laughs) got back to me like a few days later. Few days. Yeah, and apologized profusely. (laughs) And I'm like, dude, like it's cool. Like few days by email. Yeah. Every other one had been like Mm -hmm. super fast, but that was a few days. So that was. That was good Dave insight. I think the 18 months was respectable, actually, when we look back on it. I mean, um, this year has been a little bit different, but, um, you know, fortunately, we haven't, you know, experienced a lot of homicides in the city of Calgary this year. We've only had seven incidents of homicide this year uh, for a total of 13 bodies. But um, typically, uh, you know, it's been a lot more than that. And so I would often work a 55 or 60 hour a week. Mm-hmm. That was very standard. Um, and so to do this project, working those kind of hours, uh, you know, I just did it in the evenings and, um, I thought 18 months actually wasn't too bad when, you know, when you look back on yeah. it, right. And a lot of that time, uh, the book itself was probably written in, 12 months, but there was about six months of trying to figure out how we were going to best get it into the market. Okay. You know, how we were going to publish, are we going to self-publish, are we going to get an agent? And a lot of it was waiting on other people. Right. And so, because so, you guys could, yeah, you could have self-published it easily, easier, right? Yeah. Yeah, we could have. Um, but that, um, yeah, that was something that for this book, um, I guess I'm really lucky to have lots of really amazing people in the industry that uh, know way more than I do about nonfiction and and the publishing world. And they strongly advised us to traditionally publish. Oh, okay. Um, 
Yeah. So same people strongly advised to self-publish for fiction, but strongly advised to traditionally publish for nonfiction because two super oh, like apples and oranges. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it took a while to pull together. I do want to say, though, the writing, I knew it would take a while because not only did Dave have to process. Yeah. Remember process stuff coming up Mm -hmm. that he might not have thought about for a really long time. And I had to process stuff that I had never encountered before in my life. You know, you have quite a variety of stories. And I don't know if the stories are all like chronologically or are they ones that just kind of came upon you or affected you or so it's amazing so when you go through a process like this Mm -hmm. so um first of all i never used one police database not once did i go into a police database or into an old notebook to remember anything okay uh everything comes from my brain um, I really wanted to really separate, uh, essentially church and state, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I, and, and that was very important to me. I didn't mm-hmm. want, so these are just my memories and, um, there's more up there, uh, that I just, for whatever reason, they didn't, I didn't recall them for the book or what have you. So sometimes there was a, there was a lesson that I wanted to use and I have to kind of go back in my memory banks as my mind is like a roller decks. So I just have to go back through it and something will kind of pop for me. And then I can um, see if I, if I can kind of frame that into some sort of a lesson. Okay. But a lot of it had to do with like we write one thing or Sarah would say something that would trigger another thought immediately. Mm-hmm. Sometimes these resulted in no paragraph being sent to Sarah, but just a phone call going, Oh, I just remembered this thing that happened like a long time ago. She gave me the example when we were chatting. Hey, I'm like, oh my gosh. So if Dave was calling, I would answer when I knew that my laptop or a notebook was was available. Yeah. Because you learned the hard way first. Well, I'd be like, stop talking because I don't have anything to record. Hold that thought or like hang up and put it in a text or whatever. Right, right. Um, Yeah. So he would, he would just like blurt out and then, and then, and this, and this taught me this. And I remember this. And gosh, that was crazy. This happened. Oh, yeah. And then there was that other one. And so I'm like furiously typing. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. Yeah. As he's. So yeah. you kind of just peppered it out there and then made some semblance of order over time. Right. Like, like polished up the lessons and well, I got can, more detail in Right. I can certainly my career is one that definitely has a chronology. It starts like every police officer's career in a uniform, driving mm-hmm. around with lights and sirens, mm-hmm. and answering for calls for service and emergency calls to the community. So it's uh, cats stuck in a tree. Yeah, all of it. All of it. Right. So that's how it starts. They okay. every career starts that way, and then uh, and then there's usually some sort of an opportunity to go into more of a specialized area. Um, I was fortunate enough to go into our drug unit. Mm-hmm. So I can. I mean, the chronology of events. I, I certainly can't tell you what the the, the 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 few stories that I tell about my uniform time. Mm-hmm. I don't know which one comes first. Right. I mean, there's a couple that do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because you can tell you're a pretty novice in some of them. Right. For sure. Kind of beat up a little. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's yeah. right. But as as time goes on, I can't really remember the the chronology of right. them. Um, I certainly know 
And it's the same thing with the stories that I tell uh, in uh, chapter four, which is called White Picket Fences. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that chapter, actually. Uh, yeah, it's my favorite chapter. Is I think, it? Yeah, I think it might Let's be. Let's get it out. Let's have a look at it and see. So you'll, sure. you'll like open it straight to that. Yeah, he'll be like, oh, da-da. There you go. Oh, brother. He really did. <laughs> so this is chapter four, mm-hmm. White yes. Picket Fences. Yeah. Okay, give us a read, Dave. I'll, I, I'll tell you, actually, it's amazing. Um, so this book has these like little hidden, um, secrets. I didn't use people's names. Right. I didn't, I did that, uh, very respectfully. Right. I agree. Um, this particular story, even though I cried a little in some of them, I'm like, I want to know who this particular story. Is. I did use a, a name of somebody, oh. but, um, she was just a very special person that I remember from high school who had passed away when I was writing this book. Oh, and so... Oh, so you put her name in there so in I put place na- of something yeah, else. Yeah. That's super sweet. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I'm going to read her story today. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Those years spent working undercover, I saw a lot of things, some pretty bad. I expected to see that. That's what you prepare yourself for. I didn't expect to make personal connections with people cast aside by the rest of society. One particular instance of this was Nikki. I first met Nikki in a bar where she had entered that night seeking warmth, and I mean literally. It was a cold night, and she had been selling herself on the street. Her vice was crack cocaine, which she was getting and selling for the target of our investigation. Nikki was likely a very attractive girl back in her day. She had blonde hair and delicate features, but now was thin, gaunt even, likely from the dope. Her cheeks were hollow and I remember her eyes, they were sad and held way too much resignation. Over the next several weeks, Nikki would often return to the bar, flip her hair back, pick up her supply of dope, and before she would head out, we would always have a pleasant little conversation about her day or night. Then one day I was hanging around another drug trafficking front, this time a local grocery store. Unknown to me at this time, Nikki had been spotted by members of the surveillance team. They saw her walking along the sidewalk towards me and then quickly dart into an alleyway. Once in the alley, Nikki took off all of her clothes and reached into her backpack. Standing there stark naked, Nikki pulled from her pack a fresher, prettier dress. She put it on, spritzed herself with a perfume, applied makeup and left the alley heading directly towards me. That day, I had a lovely conversation with a really confused, messed up girl. I know I was seeking more than just friendship. She was smitten because I had been kind to her. Looking back on it now, this was one of the more flattering moments of my life. But it was also sad because it showed the vulnerability of people like Nikki, who live on a street full of predators. I realized the important lessons Nikki provided me. Even the drug-addicted, marginalized members in our communities still seek the things all of us want. Comfort, companionship, love, and the recognition that often those who are not the easiest to love are the ones who need it the most. Um, That's one of my favorite stories from Chapter 4. But uh, Chapter 4 really is about that social experiment that I was a part of mm-hmm. where I got to experience um life as a different person you know right and so she didn't know you were undercover no right no what's crazy and will always remind I'll always remember is honestly there was an attachment there but it was because I was nice to her right and it was genuine yeah and I can I know I leaked 
we also call we we always used to call it leaking. So um, you can try to pretend to be what Somebody you're not. Else. Yeah, right? mm-hmm. but you always leak. Right. There's a towel of some sort. There's some sort of a towel, and my leak was in this particular, in you know, with her mm-hmm. specifically is. Um, she could see that there was a, there's like a love in my heart, I guess. Yeah. You know, that I wasn't going to be someone who was going to raise a hand to her and smack her. Right. And if that's the only thing that gets somebody to become sort of smitten with me, I just think that's really sad. Yeah. That's a really hard one. Right. So that was, uh, that was a very, um, um, she was actually a really important person in my career. Uh, you later, spoke very highly of her. I, I later, well, I feel bad because later on, uh, months later, warrants are issued for arrest for the drug crimes that she committed in front of me. Oh, right. So. Um, did she know it was you? No, I don't know if she ever did. I mean, um, that never went to trial. You know, she would have pled guilty and gone and served she her sentence. She just owned it. Yeah. Owned the crime, right? Yeah. But. Amazingly to me, and 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 what I, I I I will remember that feeling of bad for the fact that that even happened. Right. You know. Yeah, you kind of feel like ah, I kind of yeah slighted it, but yeah, you were doing your job and right. You wrote another story in there when you were undercover. You were in um, a grocery store. Yeah. Pushing the cart. Yeah. Oh, that one makes me cry. Yeah. Yeah, my son, he was just a little fellow, and uh, he was three years old-ish. Uh, and, um, yeah, we, you know... But was, he wasn't even old enough to really talk. No. Right. Yeah. Sorry. And my mom... And, uh, this is a sweet so story. Sweet. Yeah. But I lived in this community that was just not used to me. <laughs> People like me. Yeah. And um, so, just describe for us sure. well, what you look like. Yeah. Sorry, I'm wearing a little. Like I'll that story you. was so touching. That's yeah. yeah. About your kid. I was, I'll even show you a picture. So back then, and and the way we describe it in the book is is uh, yeah, a lot of my shirts were adorned with sort of these heavy metal icons, and you know Eddie from the Iron Maiden made up a lot of my uh, your repertoire. My line, repertoire, yes. yeah. I had earrings and um, experiment, a big beard. Yeah, experimented. We had different types of piercings and um, a big beard at points, and sometimes a little bit longer hair, and mm-hmm. just kind of depended on 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 the. Where you're at, right? Yeah. Um, but my kids always knew me as not a clean-cut looking person. And I remember my very early on thinking um, that my son was far too comfortable around people that look like me. But uh, some of my friends on the drug unit would come over to the house and he right. just got comfortable around people that... But he was safe. Yeah. He just was, because they so, looked like you didn't mean no, he wasn't safe, but he was just, right? Yeah, but it just, I always remember that feeling that he, he, uh, he seemed to be very comfortable. And, um, of course, one day, uh, you shave all of it off and, uh, 
and uh, everything changed. My daughter was very young when I shaved off. Mm. Uh, she was probably about a year and a half, maybe maybe oh, two years okay. of age. Yeah, yeah. And she didn't even know what to think of who this guy was in the house. Um, when I was a kid, my dad shaved his beard off too, and we didn't know who he was. We're like, who was my dad? So this is me at one point in time. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty, uh, pretty rough looking. Yeah. So, so shaved head, long beard. Long beard, shaved good head. Good mustache. Often very grubby looking clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you that a pair of jeans breaks down after about a month and a half if you don't wash them. Hmm. Um, to the point where you can't wear them anymore just from the so oils t- in your so skin. Tell, just FYI. Yeah. <laughs> just so you know, I did this social experiment. Yeah. So was, I thought it was a very special story. It is. It's one of my. It's one of my favorites because it really taught me a lot about my son, actually. And I knew that we were raising him to be an empathetic, genuine, kind, sweet person. Yeah. And that made me feel um, really great. And the felt that, and the fact that he felt like he needed to comfort you. Yeah. His social sh- awareness. At I such was, a young age? Yes. Yeah. Like, he had empathy and yeah, everything. Yeah, I love that. Oh, anyways, made me melt. So, yes, please share that little... Sure. So, it took about a year to really master this persona, the map. Uh, that masked the real me. My beard had grown long and straggly, hanging well down on my chest. My ears had numerous piercings, and many of my shirts and hoodies were adorned with heavy metal icons. I learned that it f- what it felt like to be marginalized by my community. My children, by association, learned it too. My family and I were fortunate to live in a nice middle-class neighborhood where appearance and status mattered. One day, my three-year-old son and I had been sent out to run errands and pick up groceries for the week. Like any other day, we entered the store and went about our business, selecting our eggs, milk, meat, and cereals. Happy, my son sat in the cart as we made our way through the store. As we turned down our next aisle, I heard a young boy say, Oh, look at that guy, Mom. My son and I both turned to see a young boy with his well-groomed mother pointing at me. Look at that guy, Mom, he repeated, this time catching his mom's attention. As her eyes met mine, I saw them widen. And we will pick this up in the next part. This was one of the hardest parts of the story for me, being a mom and knowing how innocent kids are and what they see and love in their parents are one and the same. A scruffy dad is the world to this little boy. You'll hear the rest of the story on the next episode tomorrow. Throughout Dave and Sarah's book, there's little anecdotes and lessons like this. People say extraordinary things when given the space to be heard. Or find your passion and master it. And sometimes the easiest person to lie to is yourself. It's not hard to be a bit better than average. When I started this whole podcasting gig and trying to figure out why I wanted to do this, I actually used the word legacy to my husband, leaving a legacy of me behind for my daughter, an audio blog, an audio scrapbook of my life in these verbal snapshots. Hmm, 
I guess I'm not the only parent who feels this way. Tomorrow, we delve into their partnership, Dave and Sarah, cases that stuck with them, and the people in these cases, and how the stories and the lessons came to be, and much more. So stick around. All the links and everything for this episode are in my show notes and blog. Until next time, I'm Valerie Moss in Studio 17.